Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hart, a.k.a. Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Building sustainability consists of conversations with designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Building Sustainability podcast. Uh, I have been a bit quiet here at Building Sustainability HQ uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Firstly, and fittingly with today's episode, I have been working at the Design Museum, um, been clay plastering their new exhibition, Waste Age. Let me read you a little blurb about the Waste Age exhibition. Uh, a new generation of designers is rethinking our relationship to everyday things, from fashion to food, electronics to construction, even packaging, finding the lost value in our trash and imagining a future of clean materials and circular economy that could point the way out of the waste age. Great, that's fitting, isn't it? So we were asked to clay plaster the uh, exhibition stands. And, I mean, it felt really good, given the opportunity to put clay in front of so many people, uh, especially considering the exhibition topic. Uh, The plasters that Rebecca Reed, who I worked with on this project, uh, she designed... Two different plasters using waste materials from the brick-making industry. Uh, One using ash from a wood-fired brick kiln, uh, and the other chalk, which is dug up as part of the uh, search for the the right kind of clay. So yeah, both both byproducts of an industry that we used to create fine, fine finishes that are really quite beautiful to look at. And not to mention, really a great thing to have in a museum because they control the climate and the heat. So yeah, really uh, quite a wonderful thing to be, uh, to be asked to put put that clay in the design museum. Um, and for me, the, the original reason I actually said yes to the project was that the design museum was a really big, important point in my life. When I was studying for my A-level in design technology, they had an exhibition about chairs 
that I went to to see while we were doing a, a chair project, and it was hugely influential. Uh, so yeah, I was thrilled to uh, to be asked to to be part of that. So the 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 project was poor, hectic to say the least. Uh, we had eight days of well, we were doing very well if it wasn't a twelve hour day. So uh, yeah, eight long days of of hard work. And really, I just I want to thank my team first and foremost, uh, Rebecca Reed, of course, who I've mentioned many times on this podcast. She designed these fantastic plasters uh, and then led the uh, the plastering team. Uh, and three of just the best clay plasterers uh, I could think of. Um, so that was Anna Castilla Villa, uh, Jamie Engel, and Becky Little, all worked absolutely tirelessly uh and with such high high quality uh finishes i'm so so pleased with uh with everything they did and um and those names you uh you probably will recognize as previous guests on the podcast so really it did feel like i was um sort of pulling together my superhero team i don't really know superhero movies but i think that's what's happening these days um so yeah that was brilliant and exhausting uh so then i managed to squeeze in a really quick earth floor job uh laying some earth floor in a kitchen of a brand new house on a new housing development by one of the big volume house builders so feels pretty good to be uh getting a bit of mud into one of those buildings and then i popped off and went and cycled as a quick escape just a week of of cycling around uh the isle of Wight and the, the south coast and oh what a perfect reset to get out into the bivy bag uh watch the sunrise and the sunset every day it really is the way to uh to, to de-stress after after a pretty hectic time so yes that's why i haven't done any podcasts recently uh, thank you very much for your patience. I do very much appreciate it. I am back now. I've got a a month booked off where I am just going to be focusing on finishing my house, uh, trying to get in and warm before it gets too cold to live in the caravan I'm in. But yeah, uh, we've got some some great guests uh, for the podcast coming up and I very much can't wait to share them with you. Uh, before this episode though uh just want to say a very quick and hugely heartfelt thank you to claire henderson uh to sarah krishna and to anna kostreva uh, apologies if i've pronounced any of those names wrong they are new supporters on the building sustainability patreon and, and really thank you to to everyone that supports there's a fair number of you now and it really does um I mean, it makes this podcast be able to uh, to continue. So thank you. I think that's it. I should let you get on and listen to Duncan Baker Brown. Uh, enjoy the episode. I will be back at the end. I'm a practicing architect um i'm also uh, an author i wrote a book called the reuse atlas uh, subtitled a designer's guide towards a circular economy 
Uh, I've sort of taught and researched around sustainable design uh, since 1994. So I've mixed research practice and teaching. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've uh, sort of, I also describe myself as an environmental activist um, with within the industry, the construction sector and uh, architecture. Okay, well, I wanted to start with uh, something I heard on a, a video that you, you did, which was the origins of the term waste. Well, it, yeah, at the University of Brighton, I, I've I've been fortunate enough to work with people that know a lot more than I do about waste. So uh, Dr. Ryan Woodard at the uh, University of Brighton, uh, he, he says that uh, the idea, the sort of concept of waste was sort of invented in about 1861 in, in the UK, in England. And it was at that point that we were so, um, as a, a nation, became uh, wealthy on the plunder from our um from our commonwealth from the, from our empire uh because obviously we were just plundering the planet at the time uh, whether that was uh, uh uh resources or people or whatever that um and we weren't paying for it uh that we were able to start throwing stuff away so it, it and it was with the brick industry as well so uh bricks had always been made out of the minimal amount of raw material and most amount of waste material and of course uh dustmen get their name because that was literally the only thing that was being thrown away and even dust could be collected to be part of the process of making bricks. So in the second half of the 19th century, we were so wealthy as a nation that we could actually just make buildings out of 100% raw materials and throw stuff away. Um, and it was at that point that it became common practice. Um, yeah. But only only with the sort of elite wealthy uh, nations uh, and there weren't that many then. Um, so, yeah, that's, that, that's supposedly the origin of it. <laughs> that's fantastic. I mean, it's not fantastic. It's, it's awful, <laughs> but it's... Uh, it's... Well, it, it it sort of shows that we yeah, we knew what to do before that. And it, that, mm. you know, before 1861 sort of thing, you know, uh, buildings of, uh, you know, and we talk about the built environment because it's the major investment of humans to create it. You know, it's what they, the, 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 the major amount of effort they do, we do is to make construct shelters to live in and uh yeah up until basically the 21st century 20th century um our buildings were reusable and uh so it's only in the 20th century that you know brick walls aren't um easy to deconstruct because we use cement-based mortars now we used to use lime-based mortars so actually we use lime-based mortars uh all the time because that means that if you invest in a material like brick which has got a high carbon footprint um you can use it again and again and again as opposed to using it just for 60 years or in some cases only 20 years before it becomes rubble yeah i think yeah a lot of what we're going to talk about today is is circular economy um yeah circular economy is maybe a term that people have, have heard a lot but maybe don't sort of fully have a, a grasp of can you give a yeah, of course. I mean, I start by saying that the way we exist at the moment is not like a circular economy. We exist as a, a as a linear economy. So, uh, and we're pretty much the only system in the natural world that does this. So, we take materials, we mine and harvest materials, uh, we process them into things, and then we use them for moments, and then we throw them away. So, wherever humans have been or are, there is a pile of waste. If you think about the rest of the planet, waste from one ecosystem 
is food and a resource for another system. So we're the, literally the only linear system uh, on the planet um, that doesn't get sorted out and, uh, and turned into a circular system. A circular economy is a world of closed-loop systems, which is exactly what the natural world is. It's a closed-loop system. There's no waste in the natural world. Everything's used. And um, so broadly speaking, what we're talking about doing is transforming at a systemic level the way that humans exist on the planet to exist as the rest of the planet does rather than as a totally different uh, way of existing, which is, uh, you know, is at the end of the day suicidal for us because mm. uh, the, the planet is finite, the resources are finite, and uh, despite people... Uh, shooting off into space looking to uh, colonize mars or whatever you know we I, my, from my point of view we've got to we've got to sort it out down here and look at how we can turn those linear systems into circular ones and the reason it's so impactful and important in the construction sector for me uh and i just think it is anyway is because the construction sector um consumes 50 percent of all raw materials mined and harvested every year and we're up to about a hundred billion tons of resources every, annually that we're that are mined and, and harvested and so 50 billion tons a year is expended on the built environment and that of right. course includes roads and uh, dams and uh, infrastructure but the stuff of cities the stuff that the anthropocene the human made, made layer of stuff that's uh, we produce and at the moment, you know, we use a lot of it for literally moments and then throw it away and then mine for more new resources, process it, use it for a bit, throw it away. And we don't need to exact, uh, we don't need to exist like that. You know, I've, I've been saying a lot lately that what, what would happen if we just closed down conventional mines? I mean, nobody wants to work in a mine. They're the most horrible places uh, for humans to be, uh, whether they're open cast. Uh, or underground and they are the main reason one of the main reasons for the loss of natural habitat it's uh, it's the destruction of uh, of the natural habitat for for resources whether those resources are beef or or copper or, or whatever so it's uh, the resources that humans consume but what we're not doing very much of is actually reusing these resources you know there's apparently more copper above ground than below ground Right. So with that in mind, or well, use the stuff that's above ground then, look at it. So yeah. I came up with this phrase, mine the Anthropocene. So close down conventional mines and mine the Anthropocene. Look at ways of reusing the stuff that's been previously produced by humans been pro and processed. It's already got the carbon emissions, the carbon footprint, and the what people don't talk about so much now, which is the ecological footprint of something, you know, the it's not just carbon uh it's the it's the combined negative impact that constructing a building or a city has on the rest of the planet all the resources water food energy materials that go into designing and creating a thing whether it's a pen or a city <laughs> those that's what we need to be considering and if we can reuse stuff that's already been processed we will basically give nature a break you know we will back off from it for a bit and we've seen a bit we you know with the first lockdown in covid we saw the benefits of just giving nature a break yeah. that's all we need to do at one level if we back off a bit let it sort itself out there might be cases where we need to 
advance this because we've gone past the tipping point. So we need to uh, do some very well-informed rewilding rather than just planting trees, as as people are saying at the moment. We've got to do it in a bit more of an informed way. Mm-hmm. But um, we've got that opportunity if we start not demolishing like we demolish around the world, not demolishing buildings, but adapting them and uh, reusing them. And, uh, yeah, so that that's what I'm passionate about because to do it well and successfully, like I said earlier, you need to change at sort of systemic level. So, you know, people need that, you know, the sort of supply chain for the, the, for the construction industry needs to work in a totally different way. It needs to be able to deal with secondhand uh, materials. It needs to uh, be able to be in a world where we deconstruct redundant built, uh, bits of the built environment rather than demolish it. You outlaw demolition. We don't do demolition anymore. We deconstruct carefully so you can reuse elements. And I'm lucky enough to be working with people who deconstruct the sort of buildings you'd think from the 20th century or even the 21st century. Uh, you know, you'd think these are buildings that you cannot de- uh, deconstruct. They have to be demolished because they have been for the last 75 years. But there's uh, most buildings can be deconstructed one way or another. And, um, uh, you know, at the moment, we're still in the world where, especially in our rich financial districts, where you've got the massive international financial institutions who are wanting to show off their wealth and uh, uh, nowness by, you know, having that, making sure that their, uh, their 30 story towers are completely up to date in terms of design fashion. Uh, so these buildings that, you know, they're only lasting 20 years, not because we're only built, we're building in such a bad way that they have to be, they only last 20 years. They're lasting 20 years because they've come out of fashion. And so a typical tall building in a financial district will, the you know, first thing that happens with them, by the way, is that they, ha- a lot of them have a temporary interior to attract tenants. Then the tenant will say, I'll have five floors or 10 floors or whatever. And the first thing they do is they want to, put their own identity on the floor. So that temporary uh, interior, which might only be three months old, is torn out of the inside of the tower. So that gets thrown away. And then they mark they mark the building with their identity, their brand. And then seven years later, that brand's tired or whatever. So they redo it. Fast forward to 20 years and the whole tower's tired, in inverted commas, and down it comes. So, yeah, that's where a lot of, resources are consumed in these buildings that have to sort of constantly be maintained just for the sake of appearing to be of now. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, if you just dealt with that part of the market, first of all, you're going to reduce a lot of consumption of stuff. And I'm really happy to say that some people are doing it. I mean, uh, British Land and Lend Least have um, just refurbished a a project in in the city of London, number one Triton Square, it was only it's a building that's only 19 years old and instead of demolishing it they uh, with the glass facade they realized that because the building was so young they could deconstruct the facade clean it up upgrade the mullions for the glass and put it back on the on the building and have a guarantee for that thing because this is what a lot of concerns a lot of people if you've got secondhand stuff how do you know the performance of it what where do you get guarantees of performance and uh, of course, when you're talking about building, it's only 19 years old. The supply chain's still there, <laughs> so the company that supplied the facade in the first place still exists. So they only had to contact that company and then say, "Can we re- can we deconstruct this thing, clean it up, and 
paint it back up up where it was uh, an improved energy rating uh, insulation rating and will you give it an insur- insurance and guarantees which is the bottom line what we need to do and they said yes so you know in a way so for me that's uh, that's an easy thing to do there are and in the case of this building it was a way of saving tens of thousands of tons of concrete because the building didn't get demolished steel reuse steel and re, uh, reuse uh, glass so yeah, the amount of resources that were not consumed to allow that to happen. But that, in a way, that's a sort of, you know, it's a, a case study, an exemplar project that needs to now impact on financial districts around the world. Mm-hmm. And of course, these financial districts are, are currently underused because of COVID. So people are asking questions about them anyway. But what we don't want is the sort of mass demolition of these buildings to yeah, replace them with housing or whatever. They need to be uh, converted, uh, adapted into whatever's required moving forward post-COVID. But that's going to need a lot of uh, design time, design and creative design thinking. So that's, you know, I often do a talk which uh, is entitled Designers Can Save the World because I think we it is that, you know, we need to design the systems, the software, the emerging materials to replace plastics, or to somehow have plastics with an end-of-life strategy that isn't the oceans. Uh, this sort of stuff needs to be designed. And it's really exciting at the moment because there's a lot of people having a good go at this. So whether it's people tackling the deconstruction of buildings that normally get demolished or people who are like you know, a company called Biome who are, uh, are doing a lot of research and now developing materials made out of mycelium. Mm-hmm. So, you've, you know, and, it, and this is organic uh, fungi roots, mushroom roots uh, that create stuff we can, we can material that you can use as uh, an organic option to plastic packaging or in the case with Biome's product they're about to um, market uh, insulation for buildings. So that's amazing because this material uh, according to their uh, their calculations it, it's as good as, ins- it's got as good insulating value as uh, the most high-performance plastic materials out there. So that's, wow, that's great. And by the way, it's got a far superior fire rating because obviously plastics burn in fire, as we all know. Um, and this stuff doesn't. But the great news is also it performs well. Uh, but if you put it in the ground, three months later, it's gone. So <laughs> as opposed to being part of the Anthropocene like uh, plastic waste is. so. And one day, I mean, uh, one day we're going to have myce- uh, this sort of mycelium mix that when when, the, uh, when it grows, it consumes the, the food stock for it is plastic. So there's a, there's a, you know, one day we could even have old plastic insulation being the food stock source for organic insulation. I mean, what an amazing thing. So I'm really heartened with these sorts of ideas. And I, um, but um, what we've really got to work on is convincing the world of architecture that um, we've got to sort of retrofit and adapt exist- the existing building built environment rather than demolish and start again. Mm-hmm. And it needs a different sensibility, a sort of modesty, I think, you know, working with buildings that have been designed by other people. Um, you know, you've got to put away your, uh, uh, I'm the architect, uh, sort of ego, and, yeah, and you know you, the, the big challenge is without having an ego, you've got to adapt that building so it's it's climate resilient, low carbon, healthy, 
and habitable for humans that have got to deal with what will probably be a two, two and a half degree uh, temperature rise moving forward. And that's assuming we do something about it. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat Show. That's right. And I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at the Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Wow. There's, there's a lot to, lot to uh, get into there. Um, I, I think it's interesting that I, I hadn't considered that uh, with the, you know, the buildings uh, being sort of renovated or, you know, redressed. I mean, it's, it's very comparable to sort of fast fashion. Uh, yeah, you know, exactly. We're getting more and more uh, sort of cycles that we can, create a new look for and they become faster and faster well I, I'm, I'm working with um, a consultancy uh, called rotor rotor mm. deconstruction based in brussels and they're part of the team deconstructing some re- so-called redundant in inverted commas buildings in the world trade center and so they're deconstructing it and they've got a digital uh, platform so you can buy this stuff uh, via the digital platform and they've got the warehouses and and yards to store the material as well Mm. I've been to see it. So, you know, this stuff is happening. I'm also working on a, a EU interreg funded project with them, which is identifying across six uh, Northern European countries, 1500 suppliers who are dealing with the deconstruction of buildings, but crucially also the introduction of that material into the supply chain. So, you know, this, this, this stuff is happening. Yeah. So when that's published, that is a, an amazing resource. Um, if you want to check it out online, it's called, uh, F for Freddy, C-R-B-E, F-C-R-B-E, uh, Interreg F-C-R-B-E. Have a look at that because they've already published some documents online, which in effect are, are things like a guideline to spotting the sort of uh, yeah, the materials and systems that are, uh, that are deconstructible rather than, you know, rather than uh, recyclable. So yeah. there's a whole difference, obviously, between reuse and recycling. Reuse is a lot more of a bigger deal. So, um, yeah, no, I think these things are happening. Uh, it just needs to be more commonplace. And we need the legislation on board to uh, encourage people to work with existing environments um, um, and adapt them rather than clear, fell and demolish. Because, you know, at the moment we're in a world in the UK where VAT at 20, 20% is applied to retrofit projects. So if you've got £300 or £3 million to spend on retrofitting a building, a residential building, you'll be giving 20% of that to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. If you demolish the building and uh, build from new, you don't have to pay VAT at all. Oh, wow. So we're That's actively ridiculous. encouraging. And people still don't realise that, but it's a huge, huge barrier to uh, retrofit. You know, big developers would be reusing and adapting existing buildings for new, for new housing, in you know, a commons housing um, schemes if they were if the if the if the tax laws were encouraging retrofit but they don't at the moment and there are campaigns the architects journal has its retro first campaign as a campaign to there was a sort of uh, you know you could sign sign uh, up on a, a government website sort of uh, 
to uh, get uh, central government, to the, well, not central government, parliament talking about the VAT issue, but they haven't. Um, so it's the campaigns aren't that successful yet. But obviously, if you think about what Insulate Britain is all about, it's, you know, Insulate Britain are a big pain in the neck for a lot of people at the moment because mm. obviously they're, they're stopping us uh, travelling around the motorways. But, yeah, this is how important the retrofitting of our uh, housing and our built environment is. Uh, and it's sort of been, it is being ignored by central government at the moment. Maybe they're doing something behind the scenes at the moment that I don't know anything about. But at the moment, the tax laws discourage it. And when there are incentives, whatever Green Deal incentives that the government has, they have it open for like four months and close again. It's mm-hmm. like there needs to be, you know, a minister, a minister for retrofitting because we've got 20, you know, houses being built today will need retrofitting. And we, you know, we don't have the building regulation standards uh, to uh, apply because building regulations aren't anywhere near the sort of carbon descent plan uh, that's required to meet net zero targets. Yeah. Um, and what's becoming apparent, um, there is, well, I mean, on the good side, good news actually is there's various, a lot of organisations in the UK construction sector who have in effect got a, an agreed consensus on a whole life carbon descent plan. So what I'm talking about is the sort of carbon footprint of uh, the, the materials and uh, that go into making a building and then the operational carbon, i.e. the energy costs, heating and energy costs of a building during its life, but also the cost of throwing it away or not at the end of its life. So that whole life, that's whole, when you add those things together, that's sort of whole life carbon. And there's a sort of de- carbon descent plan that... Um, the London uh, Energy, uh, what's it called? London uh, uh, Energy Transformation Initiative, LETI. They brought out a document, their Climate Emergency Design Guide, about two years ago, uh, which was fascinating because there's a thousand people who had inputted into that document, and it's a very clear guide on what the embodied and, car- and operational carbon value uh, figures for different buildings in different sectors should be to meet net zero targets so we've got that but building control building regulations haven't bought into it so it's only a guide that you can implement or not but it makes it very clear that the embodied carbon factor is a big big deal becoming a bigger deal because operational cons uh, energy the con- cons- consumption of is one getting cleaner but the source is getting cleaner but also the use is dropping a little bit so it's the embodied carbon in the making of the thing and they're throwing away the thing. It's a big, big deal. Yeah. Um, but it's good news that we've got consensus in the industry of what to do, but we don't have the uh, central government legislation, tax initiatives and incentives uh, to support it. And that's that's the, the big ask at the moment. We, we need that because if you think about um, what Insulate Britain are protesting about at the moment, they want... 20 or 29 million homes in this country to be retrofitted within four or five years. Well, that's sort of an impossible ask, but it's, it's what we need to do to, if we're going to avoid um, uh, the, you know, the mass uh, temperature change due to the climate and ecological emergencies. So mm-hmm. they're only taking the IPCC uh, uh, data and saying, well, that if you think about the built environment, this is what we need to do. So maybe there's a longer time we'll take to do the retrofit, but it needs it that we the government, a central government needs to have a minister, a minister in charge of retrofit, a minute of retrofit ministry, 
We've got the retrofit academy. We need to be teaching the skills. But the bottom line is, from the point of view of the government, it's a huge employment opportunity. You can think of the retrofitting of our built environment as a national uh, infrastructure project. But it's rolled out across the whole of the country. And it's going to create jobs and uh, you know, training and jobs and money, <laughs> you know, people's wages. Uh, but also the bottom line is you're going to have climate resilient, comfortable, low carbon built environment for people to live in. And at the moment, you've got thousands of people suffering from well, millions of people suffering from fuel, fuel poverty every year and thousands of people dying every year from being too cold and in some cases in our summers too hot so something's got to happen but it, it you know that we're talking about something that might cost 500 or 600 billion pounds to do which actually on the scale of a, a country like the uk is not a huge amount of money especially if the benefit is going to be across the whole country in terms of employment skills blah 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 um and it just makes something like hs2 look even more ridiculous than it is wow, you know, just yes. to shave 20 20 minutes off your commute time which we don't need to bother about anymore anyway um you know it's it's like three and a half uh hs2s yeah uh, and, that, and that's not even considering the cost of you know uh, the rising cost of dealing with climate change uh that's only going to get more and more expensive if we exactly don't. the more we delay it the worse it's going to be so yeah. at the moment, we're, we're they're still talking about one and a half degrees. Um, if we act now, I don't think we can act quickly enough. I think that's one thing that Insulate Britain are uh, pointing out, really. We, we can't act quick enough. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be worse than that. And uh, therefore, what we have to do to our built environment to make it comfortable to live in is even more than we might have had to do 20 years ago when we knew about it, 30 years ago when we knew about it. And if you <laughs> dig out really old press cuttings from 19... 19- 18 you can see post first world war we knew about it as well so you know it's uh, it's uh, interesting the degrees of climate denial climate emergency denial that uh, we have always or for a long time been in and we still are we still, yeah. i think as a as a community of humans around the world there's a there's a large percentage of people who really are deniers of all of this so, there's a lot of good things going on. I mean, I sound a bit gloomy, but there are good things going on in all parts of society. Uh, you know, even in the financial uh, sector, there's good, encouraging things going on. But the bottom line is, we, you and I at the moment, a few, yeah, before COP26, we don't know if it's going to be a success or not, because at the moment, the sounds are people saying they're not even going to turn up. Yeah, you, you talk about, yeah, the Prime Minister of, uh, of Australia, Scott Morrison, thinking about not turning up and most of his country was scorched well most of the green part of his country which wasn't scorched before was scorched now uh, yeah and we may be coming you know and mm. the united states where there's a mass evacuation from california because it's becoming an uninhabitable where one in eight trees in california's dead now because it's been burnt they're still thinking maybe they won't commit behind uh, their president's uh, ambitious carbon you know, net zero targets it's uh i can't believe it you know we, we we're, i can't believe we're dithering over it yeah so. ah yes well let's let's maybe um let's look at uh some some positives and see uh what what is happening um yeah. i'm keen to uh to show that uh it's not all doom and gloom well, you can edit that last bit out if you want. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> I think, you know, a dose of realism is uh, is definitely needed. Um, 
but um so yeah i i guess where where do i want to start well, let's maybe start with um buildings as material stores yes that is a that's a, an idea i referred to earlier um indirectly it's it's this idea that um at the end of a building's first useful life it isn't just thrown away it is seen as an asset and it's a phrase that's being used a lot by people in the world of the circular economy uh, and it's the way we used to uh, design our buildings up until the early part of the 20th century where we started sticking them together with cement mortar and glues and uh yeah the expanded foam uh that you get to create airtight buildings and just to stick but stick windows into uh walls sometimes um so but that concept is is great as a concept the idea that at the end of life uh of of a building you can unpack it and in effect sell off sell it off as assets that's got to be attractive um to the financial sector for example because uh, at the moment with their 20 25 year lifespan for a, for one of their tall towers they're assuming that at the end of its life they have to throw it away so that's a deficit so i do know for example that the AMB AMRO bank which is the national bank of the netherlands uh they just because i spoke spoke to one of their uh one of their employees who was the client for their circle pavilion in the Amsterdam and this was a this is a building it's about 18 million euros of building which was designed to circular economy principles so uh, they collected employees genes and reprocessed them into uh, denim insulation the building's basically bolted together so it can be unbolted the the materials that constitute the building are from sustainable sources energy's closed loop system water's closed loop system the food that they procure is a closed loop system great and uh, Petron van Heel, who was the client, he said that um, he said to me the, uh, when he was on site, showing me my students around, he said, uh, the AMB AMRO Bank, we're a financial bank. We have assets of uh, in, uh, investments in buildings around the world to the tune of 600 billion euros. But we're now a materials bank as well. So you, know, you can see how it's attractive to the corporate world. Um that's not necessarily a good thing, but the corporate world is, is, has got the biggest consumers in the world. It's got the biggest foot, carbon footprint in the world uh, or ecological footprint. So I'm quite happy if they want to, for me, it might be a slightly short termism, but I'm happy if they see their buildings as material banks, which because within a, you know, 20, 25 years now of now, if that's how they're constructing their buildings, then, they will not need the natural resources that they need now to construct more towers because they'll be making them out the assets of other towers. So I think it's a, a quite an a, attractive idea that the corporate world uh, takes this on board as well. However, there are other challenges. So, um, but so before I talk about those challenges, actually, the, it's this idea of buildings as a material store. I think if you think of your existing built environment like that as well. Um, Again, it's a sort of different way of thinking about the building and therefore it might encourage you to deconstruct your building rather than uh, demolish it because you see it as a it's an asset of stuff. And what's interesting now is you've got companies mapping these assets, so uh, which obviously mainly in cities. Um, and so you've got companies like Metabolic who um, uh, they do these three-dimensional resource maps of cities um, they, by the way, they do these maps of uh, the flows of stuff, and cities are obviously where stuff all comes and congregates. But at the moment, it tends to flow in and out. Uh, 
And um, so they're mapping water, food, energy, but also the stuff of the built environment. And they do these lovely 3D maps that show the intensity of resources in different parts of, say, a city like Amsterdam. So they've mapped the whole city. And so it means that if you're if you've got a building site in Amsterdam, you you can with their data you can see the potential for the resources on that site for reuse or recycling. So it gives you a sort of material map to work with. Excellent. And I know they're doing these maps. I know the University of Exeter and Bradford have uh, done a project where they've mapped the building types and materials that go into these building types for the whole of Bradford. And I know that you know, we very soon there'll be maps of most cities, which is the resource that we can all use in the world of the built environment because it's telling us the materials we can play with for reuse. And by the way, I'm not advocating whole whole scale deconstruction of buildings. I'm talking about adapting buildings as well. So you know, when you adapt them, you don't have to just smash a bit down and and build an extension. You're sort of again unpacking it and maybe using that material to help build the extension, for example. So it works at different scales. You've got some buildings going on in uh, Brighton using that principle. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, we, we work across the, the southeast of England and uh, we the, the, we uh, imp- we sort of we borrowed an idea that was, from my point of view, invented by a practice called super use. They came up with this harvest map idea. So it's literally using Google Earth, you and other uh, platforms you can you map what's on site in terms of resources so ma- that might include human resources and uh, networks uh, digital and social and what have you uh, but also primarily as i've been talking about the sort of materials that are on site and then they do these concentric circles out from the development site of say a kilometer five kilometers ten kilometers looking at the stuff nearby and um, we we do our own version of that but before I tell you about that, a super use would generate projects out of that practice. So they would they would have they wouldn't have a project, an architectural project, but they'd know that there was a a pile of wind turbine blades that were damaged, never used. They were just a bit buckled. They were going to go to landfill, and they think, right, what can we do with that pile of resources? So that's an opposite way around to normally. You'd say, right, I need a theatre. <laughs> now let's find the material for the theatre wall. You might, you know, uh, uh, large wind turbine blades might not might not be able to make a theatre. So uh, you have to think about how they could be used. And they, they've used them for children's playgrounds. I mean, some of the parts of the section through the blades is so big that they can make a cafe out of a bit of it. And then the smaller bits are bits for the kids to climb on and stuff. But they've done a number of playgrounds just from that resource of material. So they've stopped, diverted it from landfill. Um, but there's something that we do as well. And the first time we did it, was in the year 2000 where we did a uh, a resource map for a project in Romney Marsh, which is rural. It's uh, it's near Rye, and it was for the Kent Wildlife Trust. And we con- designed and constructed this building only using locally sourced material. So just north of the site, there was they were growing uh, they were growing wheat and barley. So we got straw. South of the site was Dungeness, which is the largest uh, shingle uh, escarpment in the world. So we got shingle. And we were able to use local timber, et cetera. So we designed and constructed this building just using material from within 10 mile radius. And then we've done that with numerous buildings because in the southeast, we've got a lot of woodland, a lot of managed woodland, coppice woodland, sweet chestnut, for example, which has been around since the Romans. Uh, 
have uh, first brought it over because it's so durable. And so you've got this amazing resource in uh, in East and West Sussex, and it actually goes around all of London, uh, these woodlands that have only been around because they are actually the source of material for whatever industrial age you were talking about. So from the Romans through to Iron Age in the Middle Ages, etc. cetera. And um, recently, uh, well, I say in the last 30 years, a colleague of mine, Nigel Braden, proved with the BRE that quick grain sweet chestnut from coppices, which is only tends to be 20 or 25 years old before it's cut back, uh, is more durable than a 300-year-old oak. So sort of leave the oak trees alone, let them support a thousand species or whatever they do when they're healthy, which is they do a lot for us, so don't chop the oak trees down. But rework these working woodlands that historically have produced charcoal and fence posts and now actually this material is so good and with a bit of modern engineering you can create a uh, very robust timber cladding um and um we can also use uh, turn it into glue la- glue laminated uh, structures columns and beams etc so the most amazing thing though is if you rework these woodlands and after the late 80s they were uh, the market for them fell away so they weren't worked um, if you re- if you work them, i.e. you cut down the poles every 25 years, you get a greater level of biodiversity than if you, if you leave them alone because they're human-constructed environments, but they can support a biodiverse environment. So we've got a lot of this sort of material around. We've got a lot of chalk because we're on the downs, which is an amazing material to work with. So if we, we with my practice, Baker Brown, if we're working on a project, we look at what's on site, in some cases, we've got you know, we've got a project at the moment where the original house was burnt down. So we've got burned bricks, we've got burnt block work. We can use that material as aggregates for new tiles, new floor finishes. Uh, but we've got a lot of chalk as well. So that chalk we can we can actually burn some of it, which obviously creates a carbon footprint. But we can burn some of it to create quicklime, which is traditionally what was done on the South Downs with chalk. And we can create mortar, lime-based mortar for our new house. Uh, we can also create lovely plasters. We've got uh, clay, a, a white clay from nearby Plumpton, which we're using for um, plaster inside, a clay plaster. So these are materials that are just all around the site. They're, uh, by using the brickwork and the blockwork that's damaged on site, we're avoiding that stuff being t- sent off for incineration. We're using it as aggregates, so we're locking it on site. Um, but we're at the moment, unfortunately, in the southeast and beyond, actually, there's ash dieback. So we've got a lot of we're busy at the moment chasing lorries that are stacked up with dead or dying or diseased anyway, uh, ash trees. And uh, we're using that material for structure and joinery for our projects as well. And in some cases, we've got a project which is a permanent pavilion for Glymore Opera House. <laughs> there we did a resource map, which included identifying uh food waste on site so um luckily because we do research as well as practice sometimes the research really does inform the practice and so a few years ago we worked on a a interreg uh, eu funded project which asked us to locate waste streams um and to turn those waste streams into products for the construction sector and one thing we did is we found there's a lot of construction waste uh masonry and what have you but we found a um we found a restaurant in Brighton that threw away 55,000 oyster shells a year. And that's, we collected those oyster shells and we burnt some of them to create 
quick lime and added and crunched up the other oyster shells to make the aggregates, mixed them with the quick lime and some water, and you've got concrete at the end of the day, made from 100% oyster shells. Now, I didn't know that off the top of my head. We've worked with a, uh, a genius guy called Ben Bosons from Local Work Studio, but um, he, he's interesting because he's a graduate of the RCA as a ceramicist, but then went and worked in the Belgian brick industry for hand-thrown bricks and then became an expert on traditional construction technologies. And uh, that whole um, seashell lime mortar thing uh, is something the Romans discovered. (laughs) So uh, so I'm telling you that because it requires that sort of research and reflection on the way that we used to exist. How did we do it before before we could just burn huge quantities of fossil fuels to get whatever we wanted? We need that reflection. And that's allowed us, we, we made these we, these tiles uh, uh, out of um, 100% oyster shell waste. We also found duvets, by the way, for insulation, because in Brighton, we've got two universities uh, with students, obviously, uh, and we've got lots of hotels. And so at the moment, it's easier to buy a duvet than it, or cheaper to buy a duvet than it is to clean one. So we've got that's a huge bulky waste problem, and actually, it's duvets have a tog value, which is in effect their insulation value. Um, so we're able to test these products because we did something in 2014. By the way, we built this two-story building just out of waste material, and it's called the Waste House, even though it's not a house. It's actually a two-story teaching facility on campus at University of Brighton, and it was built by students in just a year. But we were the reason we did that is to prove that the sort of waste coming off construction sites was valuable. And at the time, for every five houses we were building in the UK, one house worth of waste was going to incineration or landfill. So it's 20% of everything arriving on the building site was being thrown away. So initially we said, right, that stuff being thrown away, we will prove that you can design a a building to passive house standards, get students to build it as a, a sort of learning experience. We had design students and construction students together with their staff, their teachers, uh, and a, an amazing site agent. Um, and we also partnered with Freegal UK. So Freegal is an online uh, platform for swapping stuff. So we had the amazing Kat Fletcher of Freegal who sourced material from, for us. And initially we were just using construction material. Um, but then we uh, Kat said, why not raise awareness of the stuff people throw away on a day-to-day basis? And this was before Blue Planet 2, David Attenborough's Blue Planet 2, and people realising that, uh, that our oceans were full of plastic. So we started re- we started capturing stuff, like 20,000 toothbrushes. And the build- we put those toothbrushes into the fabric of the building. We had 4,000 DVDs, 4,000 VHS videos from the late 80s and 90s. These things are still around us. We don't use them anymore, but we're- they're still around. Yeah, they're part of the Anthropocene. So this the building went from, look, we can design to passive house standards with kids building it uh, using waste constru- construction waste to we've created this vessel containing products without an end-of-life strategy. And on a campus that was, you know, a number of the courses on campus were around design, product design, architecture, interiors, whatever. It was a, it's a sort of a lesson for students to learn to when they're designing things, think of the end of life strategy. And those toothbrushes, for example, uh, you know, they were, they were made from a fossil fuel that took millions of years to process. They then took moments to be processed into plastic, into toothbrushes. Then they're put on an airplane 
flown from New York to Gatwick in London and then sent to incineration. That is the life cycle of that product, which is you know, obviously very unintelligent. So that we, we are learning from that waste house and we've been able to do these research projects. It's attracted other funding for the research projects like the oyster shell tiles, the duvet insulation, and also um, current project, which we're just finishing up on, which was the one with Rota where they're identifying the uh, suppliers were across, you know, 1,500 suppliers working on construction material re- reuse. And our, our um, role within that project was to do a summer school called the School of Reconstruction, which we had to do the digital version of it this summer. Last year, we were meant to be doing the physical version uh, where we're getting students from across Europe to come and spend two weeks in Brighton and to sort of reassess the value of deconstructed material in the construction from a construction sector. And what was amazing, we partnered with Brighton Hove City Council and they were going to deconstruct a building up for demolition for this project. So they were in effect going to unpack a building and then pile it up in its elemental parts in a playground in an empty school. And that's that was going to be the school of reconstruction for two weeks. But in the end, we had to do the digital version. But that was just as successful because we got students from all over the world because it was all via Teams. Uh, and we got tutors from all over the world as well so we just got this great team of people working on amazing projects for a week so we were able to do it at lots of in lots of different ways and all that work means that we're able to employ in quite an informed way a very informed way uh these things on real projects and so at the moment as a practice we're working on our own projects employing circular economy principles but we're also uh, advising design teams on larger projects. Uh, so we're doing resource maps for you know sites that industri- former industrial sites that are going to have eight hundred homes plus all the other stuff. Actually, saying that the stuff that's on site now, this is how you can reuse it in your new development. So you don't have to just. The first thing you do is you don't just sort of clear fill everything on site, scrape it up, throw it away. And then, by the way, buy the same the similar stuff. <laughs> And put it back, you know, which is what most people do at the moment. Yes, there's a there's sort of uh, a desire for for cleanness, isn't there? Oh yeah, gosh, want, and the want new. a clean slate to start from, clean fresh materials to to go to go in. Um, and I sort of, I mean, I understand that in some ways because I know from you know, personal building projects where we've used reclaimed materials that the the time it took me to process uh you know all these sort of odds and sods and you know bits yeah. that needed you know nails pulling out of and and working out how to fit some dissimilar materials together you know it it ended up uh costing in a sort of time sense much much more um so i'm intrigued to know is it does it happen at scale is that when it becomes cost effective? Yeah, I think so. We need the digital and physical infrastructure to support it. So um, it is, but having done the waste house, it was, you know, that, that was a, a very challenging project because what would happen is we'd find secondhand material or people would give us secondhand material and there'd be lots of it. And sometimes you didn't know what you were going to do with it. So that, that, by the way, that's one reason I agree with Rota, the people who are best placed to, deal with the deconstruction of buildings are architects plus demolition people together demolition people know about the um, normal processes and networks for distribution 
Um, but architects know how buildings have been put together. Therefore, we can do the reverse engineering version of that and understand how to be put unpacked. Um, but yeah, it's taken path, you know, sort of uh, pathfinders like Rotor and Superuse to sort of set up the digital and physical infrastructure for themselves to do it in a sort of micro way. To do it in a big way, we need platforms like Amazon, eBay, whatever. They, they're the material swapping platforms or someone like, like that. I know large large companies, large construction companies do it internally now because it's cheaper to swap 200 sheets of uh, plasterboard onto from one site to another rather than pay for it to be thrown away, which is what, what they're doing. Um, but what, what I, I also, also I know that there was a white paper just before lockdown that was presented um, to the government, which was um, which presented a, a case for an, an online resource, uh, a digital resource pl- swapping platform. So uh, I think there's a lot of people thinking, understanding the potential of it to be impactful. Um, but you doing it on your own, or me doing it on your own, at the moment, you certainly don't save money doing it. You save resources, mm-hmm. um, and you spend your money in a different way. Um, but hopefully moving forward when a lot more people understand what's required and London's got a circular economy route map for the construction sector. Brighton's about to publish it because I've been involved with it. And one of the first things they're saying is you need this thing called a remanufactory, which is an industrial building or basically a sheltered space that receives the stuff coming off these building sites, cleans it up, sorts it, markets it for redistribution. And uh, but that's a warehouse, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I think because it's in some cases it's uh, dealing with a bit of recycling as well as reuse, and uh, it's new. Uh, um, these initial remanufactories will also have an R and D side to them. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I'm looking at doing. That's going to be our next project is to is to work on a remanufactory for uh, for a local authority somewhere um because that's Brilliant. that's what we need we need the systems to support in place to support the methodologies yeah the uh, i think the rotor thing is fantastic i've been perusing their website this morning you know looking yeah. at uh interesting door handles and coat hooks and you know tiles i was, found some tiles i was like yes i want those but then obviously <laughs> you know that's uh <laughs> That's that, they're not my local material. No, uh, they're and not, they, and they won't even ship them to me. So, is there a, something similar? There are lots of emerging small companies having a go at it, and I think yeah, what we need is uh, it was, it's an organisation called MyRog that proffered this white paper, and I we need it at a national scale. It needs to be. A, I mean, you could say that we do have it. We have Freegal at the moment, you know, and we do. Mm-hmm. We use Freegal to get materials but uh, something that's focused on uh the construction sector we don't really have at the moment there's lots of yeah. smaller organizations you know and i don't really want to name one without naming the other 17 there's lots of people having a go yeah yeah well i mean i'm i'm actually wearing my bristol wood recycling project t-shirt there you go uh, oh, so, nice. <laughs> so yes, the the wood recycling networks. Uh, well, that so one I, needs a name check because that's quite successful, isn't it? That, yeah, so, yeah. So and it was started mean. started down in Brighton, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, but um, I, what I I find interesting about that is it works. So, so I worked for Bristol Wood Recycling Project. Okay, uh, and it works because of uh, an army of volunteers. To, yeah. to sort of pull nails out of bits of wood and, you know, to help collect. Um, 
And I wonder how, like, while that is a wonderful thing, it's creating, you know, community and, and places for, for often sort of, uh, hard to reach groups to, to sort of, you know, be in community. Uh, that doesn't seem like it's a scalable thing. Um, and that, that sort of volunteer aspect kind of creates the, the affordability of the end of the, of the product that the wood being sold back to the public. Yeah, how how do you think it's sort of financially scalable, um, or is it not? Timber, is it just well, the timber thing's difficult. The timber thing is difficult. There need to be incentives. I think once there are harsher incentives for throwing away, investing in the not throwing away option is going to be made easier. So mm. um, yeah, that's where we go back to central government again. There need there need to be proper incentives to encourage this because. Uh, we're not paying the proper costs for the impact of throwing away at the moment, which, well, we are paying for it because we're uh, we're, we're having the, the bushfires and the floods everywhere and the landslides on a weekly basis uh, because of, because of uh, that way of working. So we are actually just, we just need to recognise the true cost of these things and then something like pay, paying someone proper money to do a proper job of denailing timber is going to be, is going to be the way forward. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, spending spending the right amount of time deconstructing the building instead of demolishing it is going to be absolutely uh, attractive to do because you'll get yeah. the, you know, you'll be uh, there'll be the incentives to do it. So um, that that's with the existing stuff. With the stuff that we're going to design moving forward, I don't, there's no excuse for not bolting together your timber frame instead of nailing it. So you know, there are ways of doing that should be outlawed <laughs> because. Yeah. It's obviously not going to facilitate the deconstructing of the building at the end of its day. So we we need to t- attack it attack it at both ends all the way along this, uh, the line, as it were. But uh, with the new stuff, we've just got to make sure it's properly bolted together so it can be unbolted. Uh, yeah. So you know, I've I've even said, and it might sound a bit unhelpful, but I'd rather a slightly leaky building from an airtightness point of view. If at the end of its life, it's going to be easy to. Or, or realistic to deconstruct it. Whereas at the moment, I know from speaking to Rota, one of their biggest uh, problems. Yeah. By the way, one the one the biggest problem is asbestos. So you know they get that taken taken out of the building first before they go anywhere near it. But then that's gone. The next biggest problem is the expanded foam around window openings and sticking things together, which shouldn't be stuck together just to achieve air tightness. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk uh, briefly about uh, the the tower block in Paris. Oh, the lovely tower block that for, by Lacatin and Vassal. Yeah, that's. Mm. I love talking about that. One reason Great. is because Lacatin and Vassal, who won the Pricter Prize this year, which is the biggest prize in international architecture, um, they their strap line, as it were, is never demolish, uh, never replace, <laughs> and. Um, with that in mind, um, they quite famously uh, uh, I understood that there was a residential tower block in Paris that was due for demolition uh, because it was seen to be at the end of its life. And they made a representation to the mayor of Paris to say, uh, we can give you your new tower block for two thirds of the price uh, that you're expecting to pr- uh, pay for it. And uh, believe it or not, a decade went past before the the then new mayor came, approached them and said, we're, could you say that again? And this time we're taking notes, <laughs> as it were. And uh, they hadn't demolished the tower. They hadn't done the project. So 
uh, Lacton and Fasal ended up doing it. Now, the, way, the reason that, and the way they could save two thirds of the, sorry, a, a third of the price was about because, of course, they didn't demolish it. All they did was to take off one panel at a time, the external concrete panels for the facades, uh, the facade of the building. And they were able to do it with the inhabitants still occupying the tower. So one of the sort of not often considered negative consequences of demolition is that you disperse the, the community that lived in that building or those buildings. They never get back together again. They will go in different directions and you've broken up that community. And uh, so to be able to sort of refer, do a major refurbishment on the building without um, breaking up the community is one great big plus. Mm. So what was amazing is that they took the concrete facade off the building one panel at a time. And so it took one panel off, which was for one flat. I remember this thing's 30 stories high. It's really tall. And uh, took the panel off and then bolted on uh, this sort of glass box with a solid balcony. So it's like this enclosed balcony with an extra balcony on it. And the first layer of it next to the uh, apartment, which had just lost its concrete facade, was uh, full height, full width of the the, uh, flat, uh, sliding double glazed panels. And then this sort of extension of floor and then another layer of these sliding panels and then an external balcony. Now, the balcony is great because it's nice to be out on a balcony, but it's actually shading the glazing below it. So you can imagine imagine these bolt-on enclosed glazed balconies. If you just clad the whole tower in those without the uh, overhanging balcony, uh, you just got a greenhouse and it would overheat. So it's really important to have this extra bit of solid external balcony giving you solar shade. But what you also got with the glaze, sliding glaze partitions is you've got blinds on the inside to stop excessive glare in the winter when you've got low-lying sun coming in. But these, these enclosed glazed balconies, they actually created an, what we call an environmental buffer zone. They're unheated, but because of the air in them, because the air in the winter was warming up because of solar gain and what have you, it created this insulated coat for the, for the tower. So... The other thing it did is because it, well, they went from small windows in these concrete panels to full width, full height, sliding glazing. They got lots of natural light during the day, which could be controlled with the internal blinds, two layers of internal blinds, both sets of uh, sliding doors had the uh, blinds, uh, but also natural ventilation was increased. So the, uh, the healthy interior <laughs> was something they benefited from with, with these new bolt-on balconies uh but um also uh they did before they were having to turn their uh, lights on in the flat during the day because it was the windows were so small so the net result is they've got this sort of unheated but insulating uh, coat that keeps them warm in the winter and cool in the summer they've got vastly improved ventilation so the air quality is good and vastly improved natural light and therefore their energy bills plummeted so it costs forty percent less to heat and uh, light these uh, these flats, and they got an extension to the flat, <laughs> and it cost only two thirds the car, uh, the price that the, the uh, city had put aside for their new apartments. They look like, and it looks like a new block of flats, um, but it's actually the old one just with a new coat, and the tenants are the same people. Which in this case it was sheltered accommodation for uh, older people. 
So it's just win, win, win. And uh, Lacton of Vassal, who are the amazing practice who did this, and they've done it again and again. They've done a much larger scheme in Marseille doing a similar thing. Uh, yeah, they, I interviewed them for my book, and uh, Anne Lacton said, please don't call us environmentally friendly, green architects or whatever. What we are is we're just coming up with a sort of practical best design solution. And that's what we need to address the climate emergency is to employ really good design. And if, once you've got your constraints sorted out uh, and your priorities, i.e. The, the, the reduction in the consumption of resources, then over to you, uh, you know, designers and architects, show us what you're going to do. I mean, the, the first project I ever heard about from Lacaton of Vassal was they got, they were famous because they, in effect, turned down the commission to redesign an urban square in, in a, a town in Paris. It's not Italian Paris, Italian France. And um, what they did is they, they were commissioned to redesign this urban square. And they did the right sort of site analysis, at looking at how it was being used and how it could be used better and why was it not popular and how could it become popular. And they, they sent their results to the client and they basically said, you don't have to do anything apart from repair the benches more often and clear up the dog poo more often. And then people will love it. It works really well apart from that. So we were all like, jaws on the floor because that's turning down a job they were going to get tens of thousands of euros of fee and they did their first bit of work and said we don't need to do anything here the guts to say nothing needs to be done apart from well maybe nothing or a bit is what it takes it, you know it's being authentic with your research and having a clear response and you know we've, we we as humankind have got to respond to the climate and ecological emergency and do that in an authentic way and with that in mind you know, the rest should sort of fall into place. And one thing I always say is that we do have the collective knowledge of what know, of what to do. We know what to do collectively. Some people, you know, some bits, we don't know everything. So we've just got to be, get a lot more used to open source uh, uh, research and a lot more used to sharing our knowledge and learning from other people, listening and understanding. Because you get the, the great thing about the, the Letty Climate Emergency Design Guide was those thousand people that took part in the project in the first place. They were a cross sector from, you know, interior architects, environmental engineers, clients, contractors, all with their separate knowledges coming together, coming up with this consensus consensus for a whole life carbon descent plan. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
Thank you so much to Duncan Baker-Brown. That was so densely packed with information. Um, there is a whole big list of links in the show notes. Um, so do make sure you click through to those and get really into that, that library of information. Uh, before I go, I just wanted to say if you are one of the 300 or so uh, that listen to this on Apple Podcasts in its very first week, then uh, please, if you get a second, head to the uh, the Building Sustainability Apple page and leave a review. Leave uh, uh, a nice five-star rating. Yeah, why not? Uh, that really does do, uh, do a huge amount for, for getting uh, the podcast noticed. Um, that would be swell. Um, and general sort of liking and sharing and telling your friends. You know the score. Okay, that's it. Thank you, everyone. Um, I look forward to being back with you all soon. Until next time, bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.